This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We start today's program noting that a station we've been proud to have an affiliation with over the past decade or so, I think it's 12 years actually, KZFR and Chico is like community-based public radio stations having to hold a pledge drive. I think it's fair to say stations are not fond of having to do this and listeners are not fond of taking part, but it is your chance to contribute and make the programming you enjoy so much possible. We therefore suggest that if you have not done so already, you may wish to go to kzfr.org and uh, maybe chip in. What do you think? I begin today's program by noting that a few hours before Mr. Merlin and I sat down to push record with the microphone in place, we received an urgent message from a regular contributor noting that Bob Woodward's book was something we needed to check out. In fact, she said, go to CNN right now. Yes, investigative reporter extraordinaire Bob Woodward, the man who is credited along with Carl Bernstein of bringing down Richard Nixon, the 37th president, back in 1972 through 4. Bob Woodward has a new book out. It's called Rage. And CNN got a hold of an advanced copy and decided to uh, tell all of us what's in it. And actually, if you can believe this, well, I need some background on this. In 2018, Woodward wrote a book titled Fear. It was about the Trump White House. It portrayed a chaotic White House in which aides hid papers from Trump to protect the country from what they viewed as his most dangerous impulses. Trump, of course, was not a fan of fear. He slammed it, but also complained that he didn't speak to Woodward for the book, which resulted, amazingly, in his agreeing to extensive interviews for Woodward's next book, which was to be titled Rage. I don't know if he knew that. What really amazes me is that he agreed to taping these interviews. So starting in February and continuing for several months, this is what happened. Bob Woodward sat down with Donald Trump with a tape recorder playing and talked about things. In their first meeting, which took place a couple days after impeachment, Woodward expected Trump to be focused on that. Instead, he was talking about the coronavirus. Now, we're all familiar, at least I think Radio Parallax listeners should all be familiar with the fact that every inch of the way, Donald Trump has been downplaying the threat of coronavirus. We know that he's prone to wishful thinking. We know that he's prone to only listening to uh, advisors that tell him what he'd like to hear. So one could argue that Donald Trump possibly just tuned out all the things he was told. He has said on many occasions after the fact that back in January, he wasn't really briefed on any of this stuff. And so he was kind of unaware of a lot of it. He did institute a travel ban at the end of January. Although Woodward's book apparently does not delve into this, uh, there's good evidence that Trump was being briefed very early in January. And many weeks went by, and many people flew from China to the United States before that travel ban was implemented. But wouldn't you know it, Trump actually did listen to what he was being told. He listened, he duplicated it, and he was able to repeat the information to Bob Woodward on tape. We don't have the details about those early January briefings in front of us at the moment, but courtesy of CNN, we can remind you that it was a January 28th top secret intelligence briefing 
involving National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien that gave Trump a jarring warning about the virus. The president was told it would be the biggest national security threat of his presidency. Wrote Bob Woodward, Trump's head popped up. O'Brien's deputy, Matt Pottinger, concurred, telling Trump it would be as bad as the influenza pandemic of 1918, which killed an estimated 50 million worldwide, including 675,000 Americans. Pottinger warned Trump that asymptomatic spread was occurring in China. He had been told that 50% of those infected showed no symptoms. Again, this is January 28th. We know the president was informed of what you just heard. The experts had looked at it and they predicted it was going to be as bad as the influenza pandemic of 1918. I sure wish I had had that information in January of 2020. I wish that information had been spread widely. Three days after this, Trump announced restrictions on travel to China, a move that was suggested by his national security team, despite his later claim that he alone backed the travel limitations. Yet, as I think we're all painfully aware, Trump nevertheless continued to publicly downplay the dangers of the virus. Bob Woodward wrote, February was a lost month. Viewing it as a missed opportunity for Trump to reset the leadership clock after he was told this was a once-in-a-lifetime health emergency. At the time of the February 7th interview, Trump had just spoken with China's leader, Xi Jinping. Trump revealed to Woodward that he was aware of the fact that the coronavirus was dangerous, airborne, and more deadly than the flu. To quote verbatim from the transcript, It goes through the air, Bob. That's always suffered the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air in. That's how it's passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. It's also more deadly than your, you know, your, even your strenuous flu. You know, people don't realize we lose 25, 30,000 people a year. Who would ever think that, right? Now, again, the president was briefed on January 28th. We can be certain of that. He was advised this is going to be the worst thing since 1918. Yet during a pre-Super Bowl interview on Fox on February 2nd, Trump said, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. Two days later, during his State of the Union address, he made only passing references to the virus, promising my administration will take all necessary steps to safeguard our citizens from this threat. In a later interview, in May, Woodward asked the president if he remembered O'Brien's January 28th warning that the virus would be the biggest national security threat of his presidency. Trump equivocated. No, I don't, he said. I'm sure if he said it, you know, I'm sure he said it. Nice guy. The book highlights how the president took all the credit and none of the responsibility for his actions related to the pandemic, which has now infected, I don't know, six and a half million Americans and killed more than 200,000. I know the official number isn't quite there yet, but in reality, we passed that long ago. So on February 7th, Trump is able to explain to Bob Woodward, tells him in regard to his discussion with Xi Jinping, we've got a little bit of an interesting setback with the virus going in China adding then it goes through the air, etc. It's very tricky, very delicate, more deadly than even your strenuous flu. He meant, I think, virulent, but you know, that's, that's a tough word for Donald. And of course, Trump then spends most of the rest of the month of February saying the virus was very much under control and that cases in the U.S. would disappear. He said in his trip to India on February 25th, it was a problem that was going to go away. The next day, he predicted the number of U.S. cases within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. 
And on March 19th, Trump told Woodward he was purposely downplaying the dangers to avoid creating a panic. He also acknowledged at that time the threat to young people. Just today and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, old people, young people too. Plenty of young people, said Trump. Publicly, however, Trump continued to insist just the opposite was true, saying as recently as August 5th that children, quote, were almost immune, unquote. It should be noted that even into April, when the U.S. became the country with the most confirmed cases in the world, Trump's public statements contradicted his acknowledgments to Woodward. At an April 3rd coronavirus task force briefing, Trump was still downplaying the virus, stating it would go away. I said it's going away, and it is going away. Two days later, April 5th, Trump again told Woodward, it's a horrible thing, it's unbelievable. On April 13th, he said, it's so easily transmissible, you wouldn't even believe it. This, we remind you, is the guy that downplayed social distancing, shutting the country down, and would not wear a mask publicly until, what, July? He never said you should wear a mask. He egged people on who were holding demonstrations to eliminate the social isolation people were practicing, which is about all we had at that point. He did not embark upon a crash program to produce more PPE, more ventilators, more masks, for God's sakes. He did not push testing. He has still not pushed testing. The CDC, as of two weeks ago, downplayed your need for getting tested after being exposed to someone who has coronavirus. It's politics, not medicine. And the most, for me, I think the most amazing thing about this is that we've been following this all along, and it's been clear to us from the get-go that the president is playing politics. He's looking at the economy and saying, oh my God, if we you know, shut this thing down, shut the economy down, that'll be bad. Stock market will go down, people will lose their jobs. We can't have that. I'm going to keep the economy booming by minimizing how much we have people stay at home. Now, it's, it's pretty obvious that in America, we have not had enough of the measures that were implemented in other countries, like in Europe. Europe is now experiencing, in some places, a second wave. But their total number of people who were infected, last time I checked, which was about 10 days ago, showed a ratio of 3.8. When I tallied together Spain and Portugal, Italy, France, Germany, and the UK, a population almost exactly the same as the United States, they had less than 30% our numbers, although, although they peaked earlier than we did. I hope on Sunday you saw the Doonesbury strip by Gary Trudeau, a national treasure. In the first panel, Mike Doonesbury addresses the public and says, Good morning. This past summer, we've seen a lot of charts like this one. Not a pretty picture. In the next panel, they reproduced an accurate graph showing the seven-day rolling average of new cases in the U.S. versus the European Union. That map, in a comic strip, shows very clearly that the European Union peaked at about 30,000 new cases on about the 40th day of the pandemic. The U.S. was about 10 days behind. 20 days after that, by about day 70, the U.S. was still smoking along at about 30,000 confirmed new cases, whereas the European Union had dropped down to less than 10. By about day 100, the European Union had bottomed out at about 5,000 new cases, where it remained until recently, where it's showing, like I said, a little bit of a surge. Then, as we get to day 120 in the U.S., about the time four months in that people got tired of all of this uh, this 
social isolation, we see a surge beginning, taking us up to 65,000 new cases. Some are claiming that we're seeing it uh, level off a bit, decline a little bit in California. I think it's premature to say that, particularly since Sturgis. We'll talk about that in a minute. Reporting on the book, CNN notes that Trump's conscious downplaying of the coronavirus is one of the numerous revelations in rage. The book is filled with anecdotes about top cabinet officials blindsided by tweets, frustrated by Trump's inability to focus, and scared about his next policy directive because he refused to accept facts or listen to experts. Former National Defense Secretary James Mattis, former Director of National Security Dan Coats, and former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson provided brutal assessments of Trump's presidency. Mattis is quoted as calling Trump dangerous and unfit to be commander-in-chief. Coates continued to harbor the secret belief, he said, one that had grown rather than lessened, although unsupported by intelligence proof, that Putin had something on Trump. Said Coates to Woodward, how else to explain the president's behavior? You might think it a little bit odd to note that (laughs) Donald Trump boasted to Bob Woodward in their tape interview about a new secret weapon system the U.S. has, saying, I built a nuclear, a weapon system that nobody's ever had in the country before. Woodward said that other sources confirmed that information without providing further details, but Woodward expressed surprise that Trump would disclose it to a journalist. James Clapper appeared on CNN a few hours ago <laughs> saying he was quite astonished, like, that if Trump will tell this to a journalist, well, what is he telling Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and Kim Jong-un in their private moments together. Even Jared Kushner, the presidential son-in-law and senior White House advisor, offered some unusual literary thoughts about his father-in-law. Kushner is quoted as saying that four texts are key to understanding Trump, including Alice in Wonderland. Kushner paraphrased the Cheshire Cat, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. When Woodward pressed Trump on Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's role in the 2018 killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, once again, Trump dismissed U.S. intelligence assessments and defended bin Salman. He says very strongly he didn't do it, said Trump. Trump insults his predecessors, (laughs) telling Woodward he didn't think Barack Obama was that smart. I think he's highly overrated. And I don't think he's a great speaker, said Trump. And here's one I really like. He also told Woodward that Kim Jong-un thought Obama was an a-hole. At the conclusion of the book, Bob Woodward says that Donald Trump is the wrong man for the job. We don't consider that here at Radio Parallax exactly to be news, but I must confess to being delighted that the guy that's often considered one of the great investigative journalists in America, Bob Woodward, who, by the way, has a very curious, shadowy, intelligence-related past we're not going to go into today. But suffice it to say that back in the 1970s, young former naval intelligence officer turned journalist Bob Woodward managed to keep the heat under Richard Nixon to the point where, well, it was, it was a major contributor to Nixon's downfall. One hopes, this is just me talking, but one hopes that the power elite, the powers that be, have taken a look at Trump, finally realized that they can't live with him, and are again using Bob Woodward to perhaps help show him the door. Anyway, it seems pretty clear to us that, well, to think of a, of a famous metaphor that, would, that surfaced in Watergate, 
at one point in the book and movie, they reveal that uh, that Attorney General John Mitchell was get, received a call from I think one of the two Woodward, Woodward or Bernstein, and asked about a story they were going to run in the Washington Post. I forget which story this was. They had to do with you know hush money or payments being made. And uh, John Mitchell said, if you run that story, Katie Graham, who's the Post editor, Katie Graham's going to find that she's got her, well, teat in the ringer, is how I would phrase it. And man, does that look appropriate here. Trump has put himself on tape admitting to things that we've accused him of here. How do you refute your own words? Well, you talk about something else. Uh, Trump went on Hannity, we noted uh, quite recently, and started talking about voter fraud. Looking ahead to Election Day eight weeks from now, it it seems quite clear that Donald Trump is going to cry foul. He's going to claim that this election is being stolen by malevolent interests who are going to turn in all kinds of fake mail-in ballots. Trump, I hope you noticed this, Trump advised voters in North Carolina to vote by mail and then show up and vote in person. Now, I'm no lawyer, but my understanding is It's a felony to even advise people to do this. But wouldn't you know it, Attorney General William Barr took a look at it and and couldn't see any problem with the president suggesting people do this. Certainly nothing legally actionable in it. And speaking of America's Department of Justice, run by William Barr for Donald J. Trump, how about this one? Well, I would ask you, for starters, dear listener, do you mind having to make a, a, a payment of cash out for a, a case of rape, a case of rape which you did not commit but were found liable in? I suspect you would object to that, but wouldn't you know it, the United States Department of Justice is seeking to take over from President Trump's defense in the New York State Court case involving E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit. The writer is suing Donald Trump for defamation. She has accused him of rape and is trying to obtain biological data from Trump, which might confirm this case. Well, our federal lawyers have stepped in and asked a court in New York to move the case out of the state and into federal courts. Oh, and they also want to change the defendant from Donald J. Trump to the United States of America, which would mean, dear listener, that in a case there is an award in the case, The federal government, that's right, you and me, the taxpayer, might have to pay damages if any are awarded. Justice Department officials are arguing, we presume with a straight face, that Trump was acting in the scope of his office when he denied Carol's allegations made last year that he raped her in a New York luxury department store in the mid-1990s. She said his comments, including that that she was totally lying to sell a memoir besmirched her character, and harmed her career. But Justice Department attorneys wrote, numerous courts have recognized that elected officials act within the scope of their office or employment when speaking with the press, including with respect to personal matters. Now, how it is a case involving the president 20 years before he was the president might involve (laughs) substituting... Trump is a defendant for the United States government as a defendant. Well, I, I'm, I admit, I, I just don't follow that logic. Carol's lawyer, Robert Kaplan, called the argument shocking, saying it offends me as a lawyer and offends me even more as a citizen. Carol, meanwhile, said the development illustrated that Trump will do everything possible, including the full powers of the federal government, to try and stop the case. 
At this point, it will be up to a federal judge to decide whether to keep the case in federal court and to allow the U.S. to become the defendant. And we remind you that Carol is still trying to get a DNA sample from Trump to see whether it matches male genetic material found on a dress that she says she was wearing during the alleged attack and didn't don again until a photo shoot last year. Shades of Monica Lewinsky. Her suit is seeking damages and a retraction of Trump's statements. We need a brief moment of lightening up. Here's a meme that my friend Janice posted. This would be a good time to go to it. Trump said in his campaign that if I voted for Clinton, I'd be stuck with a criminal president under constant federal investigation from day one. Well, turns out he was right. I voted for Clinton, and I'm stuck with a criminal president under federal investigation since day one. The president's lawyer, Michael Cohn, has a book coming out. This is worth taking a look at. Cohn does point out that Donald Trump has never been a billionaire. He might have $150 million, maybe. And he offers the opinion that if Trump loses on election day, pray God, if Trump loses on election day, between then and the time that he leaves office on January 20th, he will probably resign and work out some sort of pardon arrangement with Vice President Mike Pence, who will then become a lame duck president. Interesting theory. Boy, speaking of comedy relief, I, I, have, to, I have to laugh at one little item that is appearing in Michael Cohn's book, which is titled Disloyal, a memoir. Cohn reports that before Trump even sought the Oval Office, he was preoccupied by its occupant, Barack Obama, publicly questioning his birthplace, as we well know, and privately describing him as a Manchurian candidate who obtained his Ivy League degrees only by the way of affirmative action. And we have to refer a little later in the show or maybe in the next show to that idea of Manchurian candidate becoming a president because a lot of people think that's what Donald Trump is. Anyway, Trump's disdain for Obama was so extreme, says Cohn, that he took his fixation one step further. He hired a Fobama to participate in a video in which Trump ritualistically belittled the first black president and then fires him. Now, evidently, this video never, either never got made or never saw the light of day, but Cohn does have a picture showing Trump at a desk with Obama's books on his table with a guy that looks suspiciously like Barack Obama sitting apart from him. It's reported that Cohen's account of Trump's personal nature and presidency is damning. During Cohen's time in prison, he writes, I became even more convinced that Trump will never leave office peacefully. Trump's model of a man in power, according to Cohen, is Vladimir Putin. And speaking of Vladimir Putin, officials in Germany have now briefed the European Union, as well as NATO members, which of course includes the U.S., that a toxicologic analysis carried out by a specialized laboratory of the German armed forces proves that Vladimir Putin's number one political opponent, Alexei Navalny, was, in fact, poisoned by a military-grade chemical nerve agent of the Novichok Group. It was developed by the Soviet Union and is later used in Russia. NATO also condemned in the strongest possible terms the attack with the use of a nerve gas agent from the band Novichok Group. Now, we did have a chance to speak with our good pal Howard McKinney about Novichok, he being a toxicologic expert. I don't think we're going to have time to play that on today's program, but we'll try and slip it into the next. He's got a thing or two to say about this. But what we want to say about it today is that the Germans, using their military toxicologic 
experts have confirmed the nature of the agent used. It's the same one that was used in the March 2018 attack on a former Russian spy, Sergei Skirpal, and his daughter, Yulia, in the English city of Salisbury. A senior German official told the New York Times Germany military scientists were 100% certain that it was Novichok. Yet, during a briefing last Friday, two days after the German announcement, Donald Trump answered a question about Navalny's poisoning with a rambling response mentioning China, North Korea, and Afghanistan before turning to Navalny and saying, we haven't had any proof yet, but I will take a look. Writing on this subject, Samantha Vinograd, who is a CNN national security analyst, says Trump's statements are simply not credible. Whereas U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Stephen Began said he found the German assessment very credible, throwing cold water on Trump's claim that the Germans hadn't shared information and that we were in need of more proof. Trump's own National Security Council issued its own statement on Twitter, which clearly said that Novichok was used, flagged that the Russians used Novichok in the past, and vowed to work with the allies and the international community to hold those in Russia accountable wherever the evidence leads and restrict funds for their malign activities. Well, I think it's pretty clear where the evidence is going to lead, to which I would add that Vladimir Putin appears to be the alleged mastermind of the operation. Russia's playing a denial game. They say they weren't briefed on the German information, even though the German officials say they briefed the Russian ambassador. Now, the U.S. did impose some sanctions on Russia after the Skirpal poisoning, but Russia still refuses to acknowledge their role in that poisoning, and they're singing the same tune today when it comes to the Navalny attack, writes Samantha Vinograd. She adds that Trump is dangerously echoing Russian propaganda instead of standing with his own team. His statements that he hasn't seen proof do not track with what his own officials are saying, not to mention the statements by U.S. allies. With his inaccurate statements, Trump is undercutting his own national security team, which diminishes the chance they will be taken seriously on any issues, since it's clear they don't speak on behalf of the president. Plus, once again, he's distancing himself from U.S. allies. And finally, more broadly, his refusal to condemn a Russian chemical weapon attack on a political opposition figure signals that Russia can get a free pass on just about anything, and Putin won't hear a peep from the President of the United States. That puts every one of the Kremlin's perceived enemies at risk. Putin feels emboldened to tick through his macabre to-do list of threats to eliminate. And also, Trump's refusal to condemn the Kremlin extends to Russian attacks on our elections. When it comes to the Russian election threats, Trump is not just ignoring the threat, he's helping it. The intelligence community said publicly this summer that Russia is using a range of measures, including disinformation, to target our election and to denigrate former Vice President Joe Biden. The Department of Homeland Security specifically warned that Russia is amplifying false claims that mail-in voting could lead to fraud. Oh, oh, something Donald Trump was just talking about on Hannity. Coincidence? We do note that the estate of deceased singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen is threatening legal action over unauthorized use of Cohen's song, Hallelujah, to accompany the fireworks display that capped off the Republican convention. This isn't the first time this has happened. We know Neil Young and the Tom Petty estate have both uh, hit uh, Trump for his uh, appropriation of the music. But Ms. Vermillion, let's see if we can't find a tune that we're pretty sure will not be objected to should Trump decide to use this as his campaign theme song. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. <laughs>